Welcome to episode 199. That's 199 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, uh, we're going to do news only, but there's plenty of news, so this will go a little longer than we usually spend on the news. Uh, uh, we also have returning uh, for a uh, guest appearance, Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office. Uh, also, Markham Erickson, a partner in our internet and telecom uh, practice, uh, uh, who does a lot of FCC work uh, and Justice Department work. Uh, we've also got Nick Weaver, senior researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and a lecturer at the Computer Science Department at UC Berkeley. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and holding the record for coming back to Steptoe to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump in. Big news, uh, apart from the fact that the government is still shut down as we speak. Uh, uh, the uh, 702 reauthorization uh, passed after a fair amount of dramatics. Uh, the president tweeted kind of like <laughs> half against it, you know, this, rem- you know, a kind of rep- repeat of Judge Napolitano's uh, snarking about uh, 702. Uh, and it, you know, this is so typical now of what the administration is turning into. Congress said, yeah, okay, he doesn't mean it. And then <laughs> in a couple of hours, he, he tweeted something that said, you know, as I was saying, I really support this. Uh, and, uh, uh, and the bill passed really pretty handily. Um, so what's in it? Uh, that's the question. Uh, three things worth mentioning, I think. Um, uh, the big issue that drove the um, debate was a desire to constrain searches of the 702 database after the data has been collected, uh, where um, the FBI was searching for the names of Americans. Um, and the theory was we don't want this to turn into a database on Americans that can be used for criminal purposes. Uh, uh, and it's a a Fourth Amendment violation to do it without a warrant. Um, and so everybody was holding out for a warrant. They ended up getting a warrant requirement that is as narrowly cabined as I, uh, I see it as you possibly could uh, could make it. Uh, this warrant requirement first only applies to predicated criminal investigations, which excludes all of the counterintelligence and national security investigations and maybe preliminary assessments in a criminal context. Uh, uh, It only applies when you get the contents. So uh, the FBI can search and see metadata that tells them who's talking to whom. Uh, And the query has to use a U.S. person query term now, obviously, if it's a name of a U.S. person, that, that tells you it's a U.S. person query term. But whether that applies to IP addresses and other uh, 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 bits of data, other selectors, is a little unclear. Um, and, again, they kind of redundantly ex- exclude this about five times cannot include uh, searches designed to find foreign intelligence there's an emergency exception, so if you can say life and limb depends on this, they they, they can waive the uh, warrant requirement. Uh, um, what I think was going on here, apart from just 
wanting to say, yes, we created a warrant requirement, but not one that anybody uh, is likely to see used often, is the FBI wanted to be able to let its uh, agents dip into the 702 database on a routine basis because they'd seen what happened to NSA when they tried to set up search rules that excluded certain databases for certain people, never really works out very well, and you end up with violations. So they've structured this so they're it's very hard to have a violation unless you intend to, to have a violation. You're deliberately looking at uh, criminal investigation of a, of a U.S. person. So that's, I think, um, uh, uh, Michael, I don't know if you have a, a view on this, but I think that uh, is highly unlikely. In the past, there have been one or two criminal investigations that have dipped into the 702 content, very rare. So uh, my guess is... Uh, the the FBI will simply say we're not asking for any warrants. Uh, we're just going to rely on uh, our ability to look at this. Uh, and if we do a criminal case, it'll be a criminal case that also has foreign intelligence uh, consequences because that's what we care about. Well, how, how do we know how many times they've looked at it? We we may know how many times they've used uh, 702 information in a criminal prosecution, but we don't. That, that doesn't necessarily equate to how many times they've looked at it. My memory is they, they actually disclosed that they'd only used it once for that purpose, and it was a... Is that right? Yeah, and it was a criminal case against somebody who was also a, an intelligence suspect, but who started doing some completely unrelated criminal activity, and they said, well, we can't let that just go on, so we'll have to start a criminal investigation. Uh, I, I, I don't think there's been another such case uh, um, but so that so that suggests that suggests to me that the uh, criticisms of the proposed amendments that this was going to be a disaster for national security and for law enforcement to impose this incredibly onerous procedurally burdensome warrant requirement were incredibly overwrought yeah I, I well, or let me let me let me stop you there because I think the better argument was always um, we can't create a situation in which people cannot do wide-ranging searches to find out whether the person they're looking at has come to the government's attention in the past, uh, um, and, 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 and they were afraid that they'd end up restricting searches uh, at that preliminary stage for intelligence purposes when they might miss some, some terrorist suspect. Or the other option from the um, social paranoid side is, it's only been used in one criminal case that we know of, thanks to the joys of parallel construction, which Could we be. know in some other programs has been official policy. And interestingly, there is a provision in the bill, kind of not not a, a high priority uh, thing that has gotten a lot of attention, that says uh, to the government, you need to report to Congress on exactly how you decide whether some uh, piece of evidence is derived from uh, an intelligence collection uh, operation. So um, that that bit of paranoid paranoia did make it into the bill, um, and probably at some point we'll learn what what uh, uh, justice is saying about their rules for determining what's derived from and what isn't. So there's two other things that that the bill covered that is probably worth or didn't cover uh, abouts collection. This is uh, uh, where you're looking not in the two line, not in the from line, but in the body to find, say, uh, the body of, a, of an email to find other email addresses or other phone numbers. Uh, and uh, the 
more aggressive civil liberties uh, uh, position was let's get rid of abouts collection forever since the uh, NSA has already suspended it. And this provision says, no, it'll stay suspended. But if you decide to start doing abouts collection, you're going to have to go to the FISA court. You're going to have to make sure that they're happy with your um, the provisions for protecting uh, innocent parties. Uh, and then you're going to have to spend 30 days waiting for Congress to review what you, you do before they can start. Now, my guess is it'll be a while before we ever see any effort to do abouts collection. But it, at least we didn't uh, just kill it. I don't think you'll ever really see about collection again. It really looked to be basically a bug turned into a feature on the upstream side. And for searching from providers itself, um, the things that you'd be looking for in an about context, like, say, uh, key identifiers or something like that, you could make the case that, no, it's not even an about search. It's a hard selector. Yeah, I think you're probably right. Uh, if if you were looking upstream um, for abouts data, a lot of that has disappeared with the uh, massive HTTPS uh, adoption in the last few years. So yeah, you may be right that there there is not enough t- intelligence payoff for the political price they're going to pay. And the last thing that uh, uh, they did or actually didn't do is they didn't do unmasking reform. Uh, instead, and this has got to have been a carefully choreographed uh, uh, dance, uh, the president ordered the DNI to come up with um, masking rules that would protect against the unmasking by one administration, the income, the outgoing administration of the transition officials of an incoming administration, which should sound familiar. Um, and uh, uh, the DNI has all uh, that happened on January 10. Comes the order from the president. January 11, kind of uh, the, the DNI says, "Yeah, here's my order." Uh, and on the same day, the bill passes the House. So I assume this was carefully negotiated. And my guess is, I always thought this was going to turn out to be a bargaining chip, but I thought it was going to be a bargaining chip to bring um, the Freedom Caucus Republicans on board. I suspect now that this was a deal with the Dems, in which the Dems said, you put that in there and none of us can vote for it because we're committed to the idea that this is all just a made-up phony scandal uh, and we're not going to change intelligence law for a, a phony made-up scandal. Uh, and the administration said, I tell you what, why don't we do it with an executive order and then it won't have to be in the bill and you can vote for it, which smart, uh, if that's what they did, turned out to be smart because they got a lot of Democratic votes, more than I thought they would get. Okay, that is 702. That is your deep dive on 702 and what it does. Uh, oh, but <laughs> about 10 minutes after it passes and before the president has signed it, we get a memo coming out of the uh, House Intelligence Committee Republicans, uh, four pages long, which they say demonstrates FISA abuse by the FBI. they been a little cagey about exactly what that means. It's apparently a bunch of uh, pretty well-known facts uh, in bullet point form with at least one new item, which is a suggestion, um, at least we saw in the New York Times, that uh, uh, the FBI 
took the steel dossier about, you know, uh, all the outrageous things that were said about uh, 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 Donald Trump and his behavior uh, with hookers in um, uh, Moscow uh, and used that in a FISA application uh, to wiretap Carter Page without telling the FISA court that there might be some financial or um, political motivation behind the dossier. Um, and that is a that is a problem, uh, I think, uh, and uh, we'll find out eventually because there's a strong movement to make it public. Uh, I don't know whether it's a smoking gun, but it's certainly uh, going to be problematic for the Bureau and might lead to some FISA concerns. The rhetoric from the Republicans. This is, a, this some is of the, the most re- absurd thing I think I've ever heard on this podcast. <laughs> the, the idea that this that this thing is even problematic. The Republicans don't want this to become public because if it becomes public, it'll be clear what a ridiculously uh, made up scandal this is to try to divert attention from the president's obstruction of justice and his uh, collusion over a long period with the Russians. They don't want this to become public at all. Uh, they, you know, they, they had a FISA. They got a FISA on Carter Page based on all sorts of uh, intelligence that they had collected. The fact that they may have also added a reference to the dossier. You think that's significant? Yeah. I mean, and the dossier, in large in large measure, has been confirmed. So this is this thing is absurd on about a hundred different levels. Yeah, look, I you know the dossier was paid for by the people who are continuing the narrative that there must be some Trump uh, Russia collusion, uh, and who doubled down on it during the transition. Uh, and uh, the people uh, who are continuing the narrative is it is it those people who set up the meeting between Russians and numerous tr- senior Trump administration officials? Is, is Steve Bannon one of those people? The one who says that those Russians no, he, I, met with Donald Jr. and others not, uh, probably met with Donald Trump. Is is he one of those people? Uh, who are these people that you're you're casting aspersions on? It's all factual. Oh, the things we know are facts. I, I I really I look. I, I I'm not telling you there's nothing in the in the Trump Russia uh, uh, um, affair. Uh, but I think to say there's nothing in the idea that the Obama administration, outgoing uh, uh, shell-shocked uh, administration, uh, seized on this narrative as a way of wrong-footing the president right from the start and have been oh pushing goodness. it relentlessly. <laughs> uh, I don't. Th- I'm, I'm not prepared to say that that was uh, uh, that that's a crazy sure. uh, saw- uh, conspiracy theory. Trump has been president for so a year much. now. <laughs> You also, gotta stop blaming so Obama much. people and Hillary Clinton for, for everything that's gone wrong. This is all Trump's doing. And it has nothing to do with Obama. No, I want to blame Obama for a sec because, um, it was quite clear during the campaign that the Obama administration was absolutely ignoring the massive interference that Russia was doing in public. Yeah. Well, look. Without getting into either of those this, things. This is Markham, who's uh, going to pour, uh, pour oil on the troubled waters. <laughs> well, one might, one might 
surmise that at least one of the troubling things, which I think is legitimate criticism, not certainly not as salacious as what we just talked about, though, was the leaking of content between the conversations between General Flynn and the Russian ambassadors about whether they would um, change uh, the uh, the uh, sanctions and switch the sanctions, which if those were collected pursuant to FISA should be confidential. They should not be leaked to the public. Someone did leak those conversations to the public, whether it was the FBI or was someone in the administration. But when those things become leaked, it does make it harder to pass FISA reauthorization because the argument is that those are supposed to not be leaked to the public. There were people, uh, uh, Republicans, saying the president shouldn't sign the bill because this had just come out right after the uh, House had uh, adopted it. Uh, he signed it anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, uh, for those of you who would like um, confirmation in there in, in your desire to uh, dismiss this, uh, I, I note that among the uh, Twitter feeds demanding release of the memo is all of the Russian um, uh, fake Twitter accounts, which apparently have mobilized to get this um, uh, memo released, and you can imagine why. It's a twofer for them. First, they find out more about our sources and methods, and second, they, uh, uh, they cause havoc politically in the United States. Okay. Um, NSA, like this, this, all of this is coming out right after 702 passes. I don't think it's completely a, a, um, a coincidence. Uh, NSA uh, has admitted to uh, failing to preserve a whole bunch of data that they were supposed to preserve about the 215 program, if I remember right, uh, because it's subject to litigation. They're being challenged for uh, having intercepted people uh, uh, who are part of a class action, uh, uh, and uh, they were supposed to save all the data, and they did not save it all. It's kind of sad. There's this vignette of all these tapes being moved to the Office of General Counsel of the National Security Agency and stored there, and they go in and they do hand counts to, to verify that it's there, and then finally somebody puts it up uh, on a reel-to-reel uh, uh, computer, and they discover it's a bunch of metadata but doesn't have the contents of the co- uh, communications that were uh, uh, searched. Uh, this is actually old news. They admitted to this in October, but uh, um, there was a new filing, um, and it falls. You know, the bad the bad timing here is that at the same time that that happened, we're discovering that uh, some of the emails between the two FBI sweethearts who uh, are accused of not liking Trump enough um, uh, have also not been preserved by the FBI. So lots of data going missing. Uh, it uh, turns out that uh, avoiding spoliation is really hard. Well, if I remember correctly, the, the the reason that the NSA gave for the deletion wasn't very great, which was something around storage concerns. Oh, and yeah. Well, I think what happened da- is they the thought they had it stored someplace else, and then, the, yeah, they, uh, they, they reused tapes. No surprise. That's what I think happened. They just wrote over it. I mean, though, in an age where storage is so cheap and it doesn't cost anything to uh, to have uh, uh, additional storage space, you might uh, think so, but, but they also have so damn much data that yeah. uh, actually uh, uh, storage space is at a premium because the alternative, if they don't use all the storage they've got, then they can't search back in time to find communications that they didn't care about when they occurred, but which, in retrospect, look important. Uh, uh, so uh, 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 there's never enough storage space. That's that's the answer. Okay. Um, and there's the other 
there's the other problem that basically it sounds like what they did is, oh, we have the backup tapes for this. And until you restore a backup, your backup doesn't actually exist. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened, I think, because they, they restored it. They were all happy for about uh, 20 minutes until they started looking through it and said, hey, so where's the uh, content? Um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's a bad story. Um, it, it, you know, there's a theme here, which is that NSA has a bunch of engineers who are very confident about what their technology can do, and they are quite happy to tell the court and the Congress and everybody else what they can and um, can't do and how they'll protect stuff. And then the technology works 95% of the time, and the other 5% just totally screws them in front of the court, in front of the uh, court of public opinion, uh, in front of Congress. Uh, uh, technology never works the way you are sure it works. Okay. Um, Lebanese intelligence now is uh, uh, has broken into the uh, phone hacking business in a big way. Um, and then, you know, they seem to have done a, a, a remarkably good job of stealing massive amounts of data from people's phones. And then... Uh, you know, confirming the Baker rule that our security sucks, but so does theirs. Uh, they put it all up online in a publicly accessible form and uh, uh, Lookout Security and EFF uh, came along, found it, and uh, downloaded it and did an analysis of everybody who had been uh, pwned. Here's a question. Did yep. they violate the CFAA in downloading all this information? You know, that's a great question, and and, and I, I, I suspect that they did because they were surprisingly coy about that part of their uh, uh, mechanics. The, lots of detail in this, some of it very entertaining about how they uh, uh, figured out what Wi-Fi the test products, uh, the test phones had been attached to as they were testing to see if they could actually infect it. And it was always attached to Wi-Fi, which of course is very localized. And so they uh, they found the Wi-Fi and it turned out to be uh, in, you know, within a block of the building that houses Lebanese intelligence, uh, which is one reason they were pretty sure. Not only it. that. Yep. I think it's even more so, uh, you look at that SSID, it's buildings building three floor six. Yeah. So you actually know the probable floor these guys are on. Yeah. It's uh, uh it, uh it is sad, but you know, when you when you screw up like that, you tend to screw up uh, big time. Uh, uh I I am with you. I think that uh, uh if we ask this question, they wouldn't answer it. Um and one reason they don't want to answer it is because they don't want to give uh uh, more support to the idea of hacking back, even though hacking hacking of, uh, of the hackers occurs all the time and is by and large uh, uh, a force for good, not for evil. But uh, uh, nobody wants to admit that that's what's going on here. All right. Um, there's a couple of other interesting lessons, though, from it. Okay. Um, that they seem very, very active all around the world, enough that it makes you wonder what they're up to. And I wish the report said more about the targeting. But also, they aren't really using vulnerabilities, so they're stuck targeting Android phones. So since they don't seem to be using any vulnerabilities, it's mostly social engineering and stuff like that to get onto the Android phone. But it also shows you just what a horrid disaster Android is in practice. 
that uh, I know you love harshing on Apple Store, but uh, unless you have a dumb phone, you should be having an iPhone. I, uh, you know, I, I I've heard that from a lot of folks, and I resist it uh, both on ideological grounds and uh, on the grounds that they charge me twenty percent more for everything uh, on the face of the planet. But uh, um, Actually, you're persuasive. That isn't true. Really? That isn't true. Because right now, the only Android phones that are worth a candle are the Pixel line. And that's and expensive. the Google Pixel phones actually cost more than comparable iPhones. The cheapest secure phone is the iPhone SE. Okay. Uh, well, I, uh, that's a, uh, an impressive endorsement, and I am not in a position to say it's wrong. I, uh, I think it may well be true, um, although we'll come back uh, to uh, um, some of the uh, awkwardnesses of uh, uh, Apple's uh, security posture later. Um, I did want to cover uh, uh, this just shocking case of a guy named Swatistic, uh, uh, who um, basically called a SWAT team to a, um, uh, a home whose address he'd been given by somebody he was having a, a, a fight with online. Uh, I, and the police went to the uh, – I've seen this video. It's just horrible. Um, the police went to the, the, the guy's home. Of course, he was had no connection whatsoever to the fight, to the guy who uh, called in the SWAT team. Uh, but the police were so persuaded that uh, by the call – uh, the, the guy opens the door, he sticks his head out and says, what's going on? And they shoot him. It's just bang. He's, and uh, uh, the guy who called them in is now facing an involuntary manslaughter charge, which it's hard to say is uh, unwarranted. Um, this has been a problem for a while now. So uh, if you follow Brian Krebs, he's been swatted and he's done a lot of reporting on this uh, culture. But it's even worse. Swatistic was being paid to do this. Uh, so he was basically outsourcing a, a, the outsourcer for people in pranks to, uh, to, to do this. And it was only a matter of time before somebody got killed. And uh, it also shows you just how bad the phone system is. So this was not a call to 911. This was a call to the local number of the local police department and just faking the caller ID. And there's trivial to fake that. And so as a consequence, there was no way of verifying that this call was legit. And then we get all these uh, tooled up cops. And it was I'm surprised this hasn't happened before. Yeah, me too. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, it's a real problem by, and the police, uh, you know, I, I, they, they, they aren't exactly responsible for this, but, uh, they need to have procedures that are a little more thoughtful than you stick your head out and we'll shoot you. Okay. Um, I, for our, uh, keep you up at night, uh, story, uh, um, the electrical system, Schneider uh, uh, Electric, announced that uh, it had discovered a zero-day attack on its safety systems, uh, um, which basically would have allowed somebody to uh, log on and remotely use the, the automatic uh, shutdown system so that they could cut off 
um, service on an industrial control system. Uh, um, and the only good thing about it was they apparently caught it before it went live because it wasn't quite working quite right. But uh, um, other, I think I saw that uh, at least one other industrial control system uh, provider, maybe Siemens, uh, had said, yeah, that would have worked on us too. So uh, the folks who are looking to shut down our industrial control systems, including our grid and uh, pipelines and things like that, are getting much more serious and much more sophisticated. I don't think there's enough news about this and that it's it's my sense that, that many countries have mutually assured destruction in this space with 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 uh, software that can shut down other countries' systems, and it's just uh, the fact that no one wants to uh, initiate that for fear of retaliation, that it doesn't happen more often. Yeah, not yet, but uh, uh, as a kind of blackmail, you know, don't, uh, don't send uh, a Delta Force my way. Uh, it, it has some potential uh, force. Yeah. Uh, a couple things to make you even sleep less at night. <laughs> The problem with the safety system is not that you can use it to shut down the industrial system, but that you can use to keep it up so that instead of going down cleanly when something goes wrong, it goes down in a big blaze of fire. Oh, so basically you say uh, uh, from now on your shutdown uh, uh, system is you shut down all of the valves except the ones that are pumping, say, natural gas right up against the uh, uh, the closed valve so that it bursts the pipe. Yep. Oh, good. Thanks. I needed that. I'm here to please. All right. Michael, I, there were 23 uh, amicus briefs filed on behalf of Microsoft in the Ireland case, uh, and one of them was yours, I think. Uh, um, a, can you tell us where that case stands and whether these amici uh, are going to make a difference? Uh, well, there is one amicus brief that's going to be the dispositive one, um, and as you alluded to, it's the one that we filed, of course. Of course. Um, uh, it's actually very interesting. You know, you usually don't see this many uh, amicus briefs unless it's some really politically charged case on, a, you know, a big social issue or something. Uh, and yet there were a total of 29 uh, briefs filed, um, several on behalf of neither party, although they were, you know, if you read them, you'd think, okay, this is actually siding with the government or this one's actually siding with Microsoft. Um, but the overwhelming majority, as you suggested were in favor of Microsoft, and they come from various uh, EU officials or European uh, nation-state governments, uh, technology companies, technology groups, uh, and academics. And ours, uh, we actually filed on behalf of a group of Fourth Amendment scholars uh, in academia uh, to make the, uh, I think, somewhat simple but important point that um, content of communications uh, is a form of property, and it's property that belongs to the people who make the communications. It doesn't belong to Microsoft or, or some other email provider or text message provider or whatever the form of electronic communication is. Wait, did you uh, make you, you made this a copyright? This was a copyright no. argument? No, it's not a copyright oh, okay. argument. It's, <laughs> it's an argument that a communication is property, and when property is uh, infringed upon, that that infringement happens where the property is located. The the, the essence of the government's brief is price. Kind of sounds like someone uh, someone I know. Uh, 
privacy is really not a, uh, a meaningful concept. It's abstract. It's sort of a state of mind. Uh, and it doesn't really matter where communication is accessed from. The only thing that matters is uh, where the communication is viewed, because that's the only time an infringement of that state of mind occurs. I th- if you I- think about a communication as a form of property, then, then it leads to a very different result, that when the property is touched by someone at the command of the government, that's where the seizure occurs, that's where the, the search occurs, depending on exactly what's going on with it. Uh, and I think when you look at it through that property lens, as I'm hopeful some justices will, I think it makes the, the, uh, uh, this case a lot cleaner and simpler than the government uh, is trying to make it appear. I, I thought this this question, the way you teed it up, was was very well done, and I think this will be a critical issue uh, on how this case comes out. In other words, if one believes that this case is more analogous to the physical ownership of an envelope, which is kind of the import of your brief that it's real, like real property, the ownership of um, of, uh, of of tangible property of, of that envelope, or whether electronic communications are different and unique in this way. And I, th- I don't think it's necessarily clear which way the government might come out. But there are some questions that are interesting. For instance, what if Microsoft had divided the emails? Part of it was stored in the U.S. and part of it was stored in Ireland. Could you get the U.S. piece, the half of it that was in the U.S. and the half you couldn't get? You'd have to go through MLAT for Ireland. Um, in that way, it's not like a physical letter. So I think this will be an interesting issue. Yeah. Uh, this is a shameless bid for uh, Justice Gorsuch's vote, I assume. Uh, I don't think there's anything shameless about it. I think it's, uh, you know, he's made his view clear, both in oral argument and in, and in uh, decisions from the Tenth Circuit. So, um, you know, anybody who writes a brief without regard to the previous jurisprudence of the uh, readers of the brief uh, is wasting his or her time. That's true. Okay. So, I, yeah, I, I do think uh, Mark, Markham is right that this raises what I think of as the Google problem, because Google has filed uh, from time to time to say, you know, we don't even know where the damn stuff is. It, it moves around the globe. It's broken up. It's, sort of, it's wandering around. Uh, uh, we should never have to produce it. I think that was their, uh, their general view. Uh, uh, but uh, a, that makes it harder to make the property argument, or maybe not, uh, um, because uh, the... The property could be located in four different places. Uh, I'm sure that that would be Apple's position. They're going to break it up so that basically they never have to comply uh, if they continue their their, their view that uh, engineering should trump law. And what's a little, you know, what's going to be interesting, it's not necessarily that the user directed that this be put in Ireland. He, as I understand it, said he lives in Ireland. They put it, so they put it in a close place. But if the user had said, I'm hap- I happen to be in the United States that Microsoft would have done it there. So in terms of the user's expectation of privacy, the question will be whether the user felt any expectation of privacy that Microsoft would put it in Ireland and not in the United States, and that would make a difference. Well, so there's, a, there's an interesting – there's another story that, that ties to this, which is the story Matt Green wrote a nice post saying, you know, I see that Apple is going to store iCloud in the cloud in – with a, an independent third party, uh, uh, a cloud provider, uh, in China. I, uh, and, uh, Matt Green's piece says, well, okay, they, they tell us, don't worry, it's all encrypted, but that really doesn't answer the question. The real mm-hmm. question is who's got the keys and mm-hmm. where are, where are the keys? And, uh, Apple didn't 
even address that question. Uh, I, I don't know, Nick, did you uh, dig into that a little deeper than that? Uh, yes. Um, and what Matt Green did not say but implied is the $64,000 question. Does China get bulk access to the iCloud backups, or do they have to ask Apple individually for any particular account? Yes. Um, and my guess is bulk, but I don't know that for sure. Neither do I. And, 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 and I know, wish it, Apple would be more clear. Wouldn't you think, I mean, if the answer was one we'd like, wouldn't they give it to us? Not necessarily. Apple has a culture of paranoid secrecy that in some ways rivals the NSA, and it's actually hurt them. So, like, for example, the original iPad didn't have a front-facing camera because the iPad team didn't know about the FaceTime team. <laughs> yeah, okay. So uh, my, my question was, uh, at the same time that this was happening, um, many Western countries companies were getting hosed, like shut down for a week uh, in China because they had drop-down menus that listed the countries where they operated and listed Taiwan or perhaps Tibet or perhaps Hong Kong uh, separately from the People's Republic of China. And um, uh, China uh, took offense at that and said, well, you're, you're making a political statement when you call them separate countries and uh, we're going to make you pay severely. Uh, um, and that, that raised for me if, if the, the question, if China feels so strongly about that, does that mean that they told Apple that if you don't put Hong Kong and um, uh, Taiwanese China, Chinese speakers in the China cloud, where presumably they can get at it more easily. Uh, uh, we're going to do the same thing to you that we did to all these countries, companies that got the uh, country lists wrong. Uh, we Again, I, I don't know the answer. Maybe there is an answer. You can tell exactly how um, uh, Apple treats uh, uh, Taiwanese users, I, but I don't know the answer. So uh, another question that will hang out there until uh, Apple uh, answers it or hell freezes over, whichever comes first. Uh, uh, a couple of other things that I just wanted to uh, touch on. I, uh, for those of you who thought that cybersecurity startups were really hot, they are, but they are apparently having a hell of a time finding a, an exit. Uh, there's been some stories recently that said that uh, uh, there are a lot of companies that are using up the last of their VC money in the next uh, year and no exit in sight. That's got to be troubling for, for folks who've made those um, commitments. Um, uh, and very sweet um, story about Elizabeth and William Friedman, who were really the pioneer American cryptographers. Uh, uh, apparently, they had a what amounted to a personal code in which they could uh, basically do binary versions of all the letters of the alphabet. Uh, and somebody has just discovered that uh, uh, William Friedman's gravestone, uh, which uh, his wife had a lot to uh, uh, to do with planning, uh, has a subtle code built into it uh, so that you can actually uh, uh, read. Short message, basically, William Friedman's uh, uh, initials, uh, uh, just by looking at whether the letters have serifs or not. It's kind of it was very sweet. Uh, she she <laughs> outlived him for 
20 years, uh, died at the age of 90 and apparently uh, uh, was uh, uh, smitten the whole time or at least playing the same games that they played in 1918 when they first started doing uh, cryptography for the U.S. government. Um, Okay, uh, AI, uh, uh, we've all heard that it's, uh, much better at reading radi- radiology x-rays than radiologists. It turns out that the head of, uh, NGA, uh, the National Geospatial Agency, thinks it might also be better at reading, uh, satellite photos, and, um, half his workforce is apparently afraid he might turn out to be right and that they'll be redundant, uh, so there's a lot of angst around that, uh, and CFIUS has leaked that uh, a company called HNA, Chinese company, uh, uh, which has a very shadowy ownership, uh, is never going to get approved uh, for any uh, acquisitions in the United States unless it coughs up ownership data. So that's it for our news. Uh, thanks to Michael Vattis. Thanks to Mark Americanson. Th- thanks to Nick Weaver. This has been episode 199 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Don't forget... If you suggest a guest interviewee and they come on the show, we'll send you one of our highly coveted Cyberlaw podcast mugs. Uh, We've been getting a steady stream of recommendations, and we're following up on many of them. So uh, uh, there will be more mugs in the mail soon. Uh, uh, Send your suggestions, if you're interested, to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Next week, we're going to have Tim Moore for the uh, Milestone Episode 200, uh, talking about his new book called Cyber Mercenaries, the State Hackers and Power. We're also going to get Susan Landau on. Uh, uh, I, she and I have never agreed on anything in our lives. We'll see if we agree on uh, what's in her new book called Listening In, Cybersecurity in an Insecure Age. Um, so we hope you'll join us for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 